Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. From WBZ News Radio in Boston, this is New England Weekend. Each week we come together to talk about all the topics important to you and the place where you live. Always good to have you. Thank you so much for joining us this week. I'm Nicole Davis. First off this time around, we'll talk with Dr. Tony Schwari. He is the director of the Lank Center over at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Now, there's a brand new study out of Dana-Farber that focuses on medical care early in the pandemic, specifically the result of people holding off on going to get their cancer scans. So the doctor will break down all that data for us. After that, on the show this week, we've got C.R. Lyons, who owns and runs a funeral home on the North Shore. But C.R. is also the president of the Massachusetts Funeral Directors Association. So we'll talk with him about what it's like to work in that industry as we deal with the pandemic. We'll talk about their push to get a vaccine and advice he has for anybody who has to consider end-of-life arrangements. Wrapping up the show this week, we'll hear from Boston City Councilor Ed Flynn, who right now is calling for a new council hearing to focus on the city's response for those with HIV and AIDS. Well, normally, if somebody were to tell you that they've been seeing a decline in cancer cases, you would think that that would be a good thing, right? Well, unfortunately, in this case over at Dana-Farber Cancer Center in Boston, it's not. There's a brand new study coming out of Dana-Farber focusing on cancer screenings specifically screenings during the early days of the pandemic or the lack thereof, and how that's translating now. So on the show with us to talk about this, we've got one of the authors of the study, Dr. Tony Schwari. Doctor, I'd like to start with this. When did you and the other doctors over at Dana-Farber realize that this specific metric had to be looked at? Well, I think this stems from the fact that we were very interested to know how this pandemic that shook our lives you know, not just at work, shook our life entirely from the moment we wake up till the moment we sleep. And even in our dreams has impact on what we do for a living. And we do cancer for a living at the Enough Cancer Institute. Mm-hmm. So the so idea came one important part, of course, of treating cancer patients is treating them with drugs. But I think you and I agree that cancer screening, which hasn't been a lot of progress compared to, I would say, therapies is also very, very important because that's when you hopefully can detect the cancer either as pre-cancer or at a time where they are have a very high chance of cure. So what was the impact of the pandemic on cancer screening? That was the question we raised. So, Doctor, you and your fellow researchers focused on Mass General Brigham, that whole system for this study. Tell us a bit about the data you found, how you broke it down, and the results that came out of it. Well, we focused on, if you want, it's, it's Mass General Brigham, formerly a partner. So it's a very large healthcare system, one of the largest in the Northeast that is beyond beyond Mass General Hospital and Brigham and Women Hospital, involve other you know, community uh, hospitals and other uh, outpatient facilities. So what we did, we looked at 2019, we picked up three months. Then we looked at the three months before the pandemic, which we 
you know, defined as the first peak. Think about it, Nicole, the first week, March, uh, you know, uh, April mm-hmm. uh, and May, that period. And then we looked at the three months after. And what we found is that screening, so screening for lung cancer and smokers, cervical cancer with pap smear, a mammogram, colonoscopy, when we follow, when folks follow the guidelines, right? When physicians follow the guidelines, screening went down in a significant fashion by around 80% during those uh, three months. But the good news is that it picked up significantly when things after, you know, the first peak went back, um, you know, to, I wouldn't say normal, but went back, you know, better overall. So these are the main findings. We also found that uh, we, if you project and put the numbers together, we uh, uh, could have had even uh, less cancer projected, but actually we ended up, uh, you know, having a good amount of cancer patient diagnosed simply because most likely uh, the time we screened during the pandemic is these patients at the highest, highest risk. So, for example, I'll give you an example, mm-hmm. uh, mammogram in women, that's fine, uh, but perhaps the screening was skipped in the average indication, but maintained in the patient with strong family history of breast cancer. Same thing for colorectal cancer, mm-hmm. on and on and on. I would imagine without this early detection then, a lot of patients who might have been able to avoid serious treatment now have to go through that when they could have just, you know, obviously there were reasons they didn't want to go, but now unfortunately they may have to do chemo, they may have to do radiation, and they might have been able to avoid doing that. Well, we did not look at that specifically. We hope that the three months, I would say, is more so rather than missing I don't want to use the word missing, it's postponing. Why is that? Because at the Dana-Farber, what we've done and at the Brigham is now we understand the pandemic better, meaning we understand how we protect our patient way better than when this started in March. We understand the concept of uh, social distancing, mask, when to put them to protect our patient, but also our staff. So we have put Um, you know, some standard operating procedure to continue at least now for screening and providing the best care for our patients. So hopefully now we're more ready if we are going to have another uh, massive, uh, you know, uh, peak that will result in hospitalization, et cetera, and the hospital be occupied. So we are better ready. Well, doctor, what about this past holiday surge? I know over the past month or so, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, we had that spike in cases. Preventive care was starting to be cut in some hospitals. Do you think we're seeing the same trend from that second surge? Well, it is it is possible. So what we could do since now we have established a platform how to do this uh, research is we're going to look at the three months during the holidays because, you know, Let's be honest with ourselves. There has been some travel mm-hmm. during the holiday, and we, we saw a spike in Massachusetts and many, uh, many uh, states. So we are going to look at this time, perhaps December, January, February, and see what's the impact of screening. Is there any uh, – how did the screening, if it's, it went down, what type of cancers, you know, have been potentially delayed – And most important, what we're going to look at is disparities. So if screening went down, did it go significantly down 
in minorities, in, in patients at risk. So we're going to look into more. This was, if you want, the first attempt uh, to look at this and organize the database and ask the most obvious question. Mm-hmm. We're going to go into more details now since COVID is still with us, Nicole. Oh, of course. And I think about, as well, other cities. Are you seeing something like this happening in other cities around the country? I know you focused only on Boston, but you've obviously got to be talking with other doctors around the country. There has been some. I don't think they have done. It's it's different uh, type of research, you know, they looked at. But I wouldn't be surprised if they found the same thing. I mean, the the thing here that we want to avoid and we don't have the answer for, for that, is someone who could have presented uh, with uh, stage one, present with uh, more advanced disease with less chance of cure. We cannot answer this question today with the research that we have done, but hopefully uh, we will answer it in the future. So, Dr. Shwari, I know you focus mostly on cancer, of course, but do you think that we will start to see a trend like this when it comes to other diseases, too? I mean, we're talking about all these different types of screenings that can pick up all sorts of different diseases and illnesses. Do you think that we'll see this trend when it comes to people uh, presenting other types of illness? I mean, it's not impossible, but I would say, I mean, we haven't looked at that, but but. What we don't want is this absence of communication between the doctor, the provider, the nursing staff, and our patient. We want to reassure patients that at least the measures were put at our hospital, at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, are extremely safe, and they're welcome to come back. And, you know, we are happy to be on the phone. We are happy. We have really put in uh, a lot of measures with telehealth and telemedicine with uh, our leadership here and our associate chief medical officer, Dr. Andy Wagner and others. And we want to just provide the best care and we want to be as flexible as possible. We are not, we don't feel we are in charge. We don't feel the patient is in charge. We don't feel it's anyone's fault. It's, if it's something, it's the virus fault. Here. Mm-hmm. And we have to adapt every day. This week actually marks one year, believe it or not, since COVID showed up here in Massachusetts. It feels like a decade, but we've been hearing from doctors like you saying, look, you need to get your preventive care. It is safe for you to do it. But there's still some people who are nervous about doing that. Why do you think people are still holding off despite your reassurance here? I mean, I think people are getting information, some of them misinformation, some of them impossible to digest from multiple sources. To some extent, the pandemic has been politicized on and on and on. But we have also put in some measures to alleviate these worries. You know, telemedicine, telehealth. We have, if, even if they come into the building for a procedure, I think we, you know, have everything in place for their uh, safety. And now, luckily, we're going to start, I mean, in general, we're coming, I think, into phase two in Massachusetts today, I think they call February 1st. So vaccination, I, I would I would here say that vaccination is extremely important. The studies are coming one after another, how much they're effective. And that's going to be another you know, uh, thing to battle this. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, pandemic. So what if somebody listening was one of these people who back in March and April and May uh, decided not to go and get a scan? They were too worried about it, but now they're listening and they think, oh, my goodness, is it too late for me? Should I even bother? What is your advice to those people who might have put something it, off? It's never too late. Please contact your provider, you know, and if you are a patient with our, you know, healthcare system, we welcome you back. Things people have worked day and night at our institution to make things better. It is not easy, but it's not uh, too late. But be careful with driving because I'm looking outside my office and I think, Nicole, <laughs> the snowstorm has, has started, but they still can be on the phone and do a telemedicine visit. Maybe wait for a couple more days to go in and get your, uh, get your scan if you can. Well, Dr. Shwari, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for telling us all about this study oh, and uh, good please. luck to you. Thank you. Please stay safe and stay warm. Well, sadly, the conversation around death is very prevalent, especially these days when it comes to the pandemic. In the newsroom, we talk about it every day when it comes to those reports from state health officials. With our families and friends, we all talk about it when loved ones are taken from us or somebody we care about loses someone to COVID. We talk about the anxiety we feel about what the virus could do to us if we catch it or if somebody we care about comes down with it, especially if there's somebody who's immunocompromised. There's a group of people we've always turned to to make sure our loved ones, no matter the cause of death, are honored and shown the respect they deserve as they make their transition. I'm talking, of course, about funeral directors. I wanted to reach out and get their perspective about what it's like to provide these services to us during the pandemic and how they're feeling as we make our way through all of this. So C.R. Lyons is the director of the Massachusetts Funeral Directors Association. He also has a funeral home in Danvers. CR joins us now on the show to give us a little bit of that insight. Thanks for joining us, CR. Obviously, a very difficult time, I feel, for funeral directors as we deal with the coronavirus. Have funeral directors here in Massachusetts found themselves to be overwhelmed at all with the number of deaths as we deal with COVID-19? Certainly, if you look at uh, just the statistical data, um, we were anticipating a great surge um, in the number of deaths over the uh, previous several weeks, and, and that fortunately, um, really never occurred. The, the, the death rate, un, unfortunately, did tick up some. Um, but, we, you know, uh, compared to where we were in, uh, in April and May, it, it, you know, the death rate was nowhere near that. And it was really those, those spring months where funeral directors really felt taxed on the, the work that we had to do. I'm curious to know about the different safety measures you have to take to keep yourself safe as you do your work, especially with COVID patients. Sure. So, um, you know, we use the same um, or very similar universal precautions that would be used in any healthcare setting. Uh, and we do that with everybody, of course. Uh, um, uh, but, uh, but much like with healthcare, uh, we probably kind of took it to, uh, to another level and were um, extra cautious uh, with, uh, with, the, uh, with even the non-COVID patients because there was such uncertainty as to who did and who didn't have COVID. Right. Um, so it was, uh, um, it was kind of a nervous time, I think, for funeral directors to just ensure that we had um, the appropriate equipment for everybody, uh, for all of our staff members, and for the increased number of deaths to make sure uh, that we had the, um, the 
personal protective equipment, the PPE, that uh, that was, would be needed to get through um, the surge back in the spring. And then uh, I know most of us um, uh, kind of, you know, knowing that a, a second surge was anticipated, um, that that's when we were able to really better prepare and ensure that we had all of the uh, all of the equipment that we knew we knew we would need as we moved into uh, into the fall and the winter. So tell us then a little bit about what sort of services you're holding right now, because everything has to look very different because of the virus. How it can does, yeah. you know, how do people go about? I guess, honoring those who have died, if you can't, you know, you normally have the long lines for the wakes and so on and so yeah. forth. How do you do that now? Well, you know, everything has kind of been, uh, you know, for us, I think some, there have been certainly some growing pains in coming to understand what works and what doesn't. In April and uh, May and June, we essentially were, were shut down altogether. Um, the, the, the most uh, elaborate service you could really have for anyone would be uh, 10 people at a graveside service. Um, so outside and, and limiting the numbers to about 10 people, uh, which I imagine, you know, if you think about larger families, uh, trying to get to decide which 10 uh, come can be really a challenge uh, for a family to make that kind of a decision. So we were incredibly grateful when um, we heard that uh, as the state began to reopen, the um, the funeral homes were were able to open with some measure of uh, of normalcy. Uh, we're allowed to have wakes now, visitations, uh, pretty easily because uh, you know, as you know, a wake uh, is a line, and so folks come in, they pay their respects, and they probably don't linger as long as they normally would. They don't have time to to maybe watch the six or seven minute video tribute. Uh, you know, they pay their respects. And what I think the hardest thing for families really is the lack of of touch. You know, right. uh, there's nothing better than uh, a consoling uh, hug or handshake uh, to know that you're not alone and to uh, to ask folks who are coming in to pay their respects to some uh, someone uh, to not be able to do that is, I think, really challenging for people. Do you think we'll ever get back to that, though, at this rate? You know, I, I think we will, because I see a lot of people bending those rules, and uh, they can't, just can't help themselves. I think that just the nature of when you uh, when you come across your best friend and her husband has just died, you're going to want to give her a hug, right, right. Uh, and you can't. It's just instinctive. So as much as we've kind of stepped back um, from a lot of people doing that, we're still seeing enough bending of the rules. Um, or, or the bending of the guidelines. Uh, I don't think it's really a rule that you can't touch someone, um, but um, a bending of the best practice because we just need that physical contact with other people. And uh, and so I think you know I, I think it's given people across the country uh, an appreciation for those things that we've lost over the last 11 months. Well, we're coming up on a bit of a break here, so after that we'll get back to our conversation with C.R. Lyons. He is the president of the Massachusetts Funeral Directors Association. Right now, we're talking about what it's like to work in that industry as we deal with the pandemic. After our conversation, we've got Boston City Councilor Ed Flynn on the show this week as well. So stick around. We'll be back in just a few minutes right here on New England Weekend from WBZ News Radio. Welcome back to New England Weekend from WBZ News Radio in Boston. I'm Nicole Davis. 
Right now I'm speaking with C.R. Lyons. He is the president of the Massachusetts Funeral Directors Association, and he also owns and operates a funeral home in Danvers. We've been talking for the past few minutes about what it's like to work in the funeral industry during the pandemic, uh, what they're dealing with, how they're feeling about things, and how the industry is going to look as we move forward. So let's get back to that conversation. What kind of safety precautions do you have to take when this happens? Because obviously you can't you can't just go walking into somebody's home, especially if somebody's passed away of COVID without protecting yourself. So funeral homes across the state have... Um, uh, kind of marked, you know, I, I can speak certainly at my funeral home, uh, but I think it's pretty universal. Uh, you know, we require masks as they enter the building and, uh, at, you know, have signage up discouraging physical contact and asking folks to keep their visits more brief. Um, you know, you can't turn a corner without coming across a bottle of hand sanitizer. Uh, and, uh, you know, eliminating some of those touch points that were common. Some of them have returned, for example, as we've, as we've learned more about the virus and know that it can't live as long on an inanimate object. For example, uh, you know, uh, initially we didn't have prayer cards available for folks to, to take. We now have those out. We're doing it a little more differently. Mm. Um, but those are now available. Uh, for a long time we didn't have a register book available. Um, and we've now, uh, you know, uh, do have the register book available, but everybody gets their own pen. Uh, and um, and we've uh, at our funeral home, um, it would be very customary, customary to have a kneeler in front of the casket uh, or urn uh, for folks to, to stop and say a prayer. Um, the kneeler has not come back yet. We're still doing services without a kneeler. Uh, just to, you know, again, eliminate a touch point that everyone is going to come across. Um, and then, of course, services. Um, Funeral services remain incredibly different because of occupancy requirements. Unlike at a wake, where you might have uh, folks coming and going at different times over the course of several hours, a funeral service is at a set time. And so uh, in most instances, in many instances anyway, uh, funeral services have had to remain private because funeral homes um, have to keep an occupancy of under 25% in the funeral home right now. Mm, that's true. So in my case, you know, we're allowing folks to have uh, up to 20 um, of their, you know, friends and family be able to participate inside the funeral home at a service. And churches that are open um, have that same guideline. So uh, they're limited to in terms of their occupancy. So some churches cannot, can obviously accommodate more than that. Um, but again, it's tied to uh, occupancy requirements. CR, have you found more people are choosing a graveside service because it's outside? I mean, uh, right now it's very cold outside, of course, and that's not ideal. But it is better for spacing, social distancing, wind flow, that sort of thing. It, it Yes, absolutely. And people are very quick to social distance. Um, With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every day, we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. 
agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. And, uh, and so it is, uh, it is a way to um, make things feel at least a little bit safer if everyone's got their masks on and and can be socially distant it's certainly a um you know a safer way to move forward of course on a week like this where we've got snow today and Mm -hmm. and snow in the forecast and bitter cold makes things very very much more challenging here in new england Um, but uh, we were fortunate to get through uh, a very mild fall and a mild start to the winter and we were certainly uh, grateful for that so that folks could have those opportunities well, I know the HVAC as well. HVAC systems, air purifiers, they've been really named as key here to keep the air supply moving. Uh, some funeral homes, you know, they've been around for a century in some cases. Have you had to yeah. make any sort of modifications to your home? Because I know yours is, uh, it's been around for a few generations now. Well, we fortunately have a relatively new uh, HVAC system here. So ours is in good shape. But I do know of funeral homes that have uh, added or at least are considering, and it's certainly something we've talked about, uh, adding air purifiers to the uh, to the uh, to the funeral home in uh, in the hopes that they may be um, successful at helping to mitigate the virus. Um, unfortunately, they're costly, uh, and uh, and they're uh, and it, it remains to be seen whether or not they're actually effective, or if they're just something that make you feel good. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's uh, it would be ideal if we could all we could all update our systems, but. Uh, uh, the reality is things are just expensive. No, that's a fair point. Let's talk about the vaccine now, because right now you've been yeah. moved up to phase two as funeral directors, funeral workers, mm-hmm. and phase two is underway right now, although in phases. You have been asking the state for more priority to have access to the shot right now. So why is yeah. that? So um, the reality is funeral directors, I, you know, I think we all feel funeral directors fit into two categories that are uh, being vaccinated in phase one, the first being first responders and the second being uh, health care providers. Uh, the CDC uh, considers us health care providers in their, in their um, deliberations and uh, recommendations um, because we're in and out of those facilities constantly. We're in and out of hospitals, we're in and out of nursing homes, we're in and out of hospices, and we're in and out of houses of sick people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so for that reason, they... Um, they feel that we should be vaccinated in phase one. And, uh, and likewise, we're first responders. When someone calls upon us to come, we don't come at our leisure. We come right away. Uh, and, uh, and, so, uh, and we have to go. Uh, it's not like we can send somebody else. And so, um, so for those reasons uh, and the fact that the reality that we're just we're in front of the virus constantly and then in front of a lot of other people, given the nature of our work, uh, we feel it's in the best interest of all of the public that funeral directors get vaccinated sooner rather than later. Um, you know, I think, you know, m- most of us, myself included, in terms of those who work at funeral homes, have all gone on to a, the COVID wing of a nursing home and uh, which is often filled with patients with other ailments aside from uh, COVID, which oftentimes include um, dementia and Alzheimer's uh, or other um, mental impairments that make it impossible for those people to be even wearing masks. Uh, So you're going into these environments where folks are sick and not masked. And uh, and although we're using our uh, appropriate precautions, you know, we're in those same environments that uh, 
that a lot of other phase one groups are as well or even are not, uh, and they're getting vaccinated, and it just doesn't make sense to us um, why we were not included in, uh, in that phase one group. Yeah. Have any funeral workers or funeral directors actually come down with COVID here in Massachusetts so far? Yes, we, uh, there have been uh, uh, many funeral homes. In fact, I heard of a funeral home just this morning that's shut down because of COVID, mm-hmm. uh, because of the number of staff members who are, are sick with COVID. Uh, a funeral director friend of mine uh, is in the hospital right now with COVID, and he, he feels very confident that he can point to the instance where he, he feels he caught it uh, from a, a, situa- a COVID situation um, where he was working with a family that was sick with COVID. Mm. Um, and uh, since, since March, I know of probably um, between a half dozen and a dozen funeral homes that have had to uh, basically shut down for, uh, for a week and a half because of uh, COVID situations. So you've made this argument then to the state. Is there any movement on, you know, they've put you up into phase two, but is there any movement on, I guess, elevating you further in phase two to get you that vaccine now? Yeah, well, we certainly hope so. Uh, it's frustrating because we haven't even received the courtesy of a response. Uh, and uh, and I realize that folks uh, are in the state are busy, uh, but uh, but everyone's busy and uh, uh, and everyone's working hard. So, um, you know, uh, the courtesy of a response would, would at least go a long way to explain uh, if they're not going to move us, move us up, why they're not going to, uh, given the evidence that we've continued to present to them. I, I think about, you know, your physical health, and I also think about mental health. How are funeral directors and people who work in funeral homes taking care of your mental health as we go through the pandemic? I mean, this has got to be a lot to take in. Yeah. Well, I think it's a lot, for, you know, it's different for all of us. Uh, you know, I know uh, when the weather was cooperating, we've got a beautiful rail, a rail trail here in Danvers. I'd, I'd uh, uh, you know, I could if in the afternoon before it got dark, I'd scoot out on the rail trail and, and take a nice walk um, to uh, to unwind. But, uh, uh, you know, we all find our own ways to uh, to decompress, as it were. And uh, uh, and funeral directors generally, and myself included, aren't always good at that. But uh, but I think, you know, as time goes on, you realize if I don't go do something for myself, uh, I'm not going to be any good to anybody else. And that's sage advice anyway, I think, across the board, no matter what you're doing, yeah. and especially yeah, right yeah, now during all this. That's for funeral directors. Yeah, that's for all of us <laughs> that, are, uh, that are suffering through this pandemic. We're all doing it together. I know that we tend to talk about deaths, especially when we deal with something like the pandemic in terms of numbers. And I feel yeah. like for you, it's got to be so much more personal than that. It is. You know, every... Uh, every family and every, every deceased person um, is a story, you know, uh, from, from the beginning of their life to the end. And, uh, and funerals are really about telling the story of that life. And, uh, and it's so hard to not be able to guide a family through what they're accustomed to doing and, and what they need to be doing to help um, begin to process the grief that they're, they're experiencing. And, uh, and when we have to, uh, to limit things uh, as, as we've had to, um, you know, it's so hard. You think about um, families who are uh, geographically challenged in, in, in a situation like this where uh, coming across the country to attend the, the funeral uh, of, a, of a close relative might mean having to push off the funeral for an, a number of days because of quarantining requirements. Right. And uh, and all of the challenges associated with that, and uh, uh, when and and we have an urgency, or the sense of urgency, I think, when someone dies to to uh, um, to come together, and um, and when you're being told by 
the state, uh, understandably, that, no, you can't come together right now. We need you to stay separate from these people until we know you as yourself are not sick. Um, it's really challenging. Uh, and, uh, you know, we certainly understand why we have to do it. Uh, but, uh, but I think for families, it just, it's one more layer of frustration and, um, and stress that, uh, that's added to them at the time of a loss like this. Well, pandemic or not, families do have to think about end-of-life arrangements. The pandemic doesn't stop that sort of thing. What sort of advice do you have for families who are listening, uh, families maybe they know somebody, just anybody who has to do this as we deal with the pandemic and all the restrictions in place? Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, my advice would probably be to um, do the things that you need to do now in order to start to move forward with a loss, but recognize that, too, you can still do things later. Uh, And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, we need to bury the dead or cremate the dead. We have that kind of official responsibility that we need to do Um, and maybe have and begin the process with some kind of small and simple ceremony. But recognize that you can still celebrate the life of that person at a time that might be more appropriate um, when it's easier for people to gather. Uh, And so, um, you know, if someone passed away, maybe waiting until, um, you know, a special holiday or a uh, a birthday to recognize the um, the recognize the life in a more public way uh, might be a more appropriate and fitting thing to do right now, and to not be afraid to think outside the box in terms of uh, in terms of the arrangements that you want to have, and your funeral director could certainly help you with that. Well, C.R. Lyons of the Lyons Funeral Home in Danvers, also the president of the Massachusetts Funeral Directors Association. A great insight here. Thank you so much, C.R., for coming on and uh, talking with us about this. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's an honor to do what we do, and uh, we'll continue to, uh, to serve the people as best we can. Well, recently I was looking through the press releases we get in the newsroom, and I noticed that Boston City Councilor Ed Flynn called for a new hearing. He says he wants the city to find ways, in his words, to be more proactive about getting services out to those who have HIV and AIDS. Councillor Flynn has joined us now on the show to give us a few more details about this. So, Councillor, tell us a bit more about why you decided to make this move now. During this pandemic, it was critical that there was a gap in public health services. And one of those gaps was in um, HIV, AIDS, in I have talked to public health officials about the increase in the numbers of people testing positive, and I thought it was critical to make sure that we do all we can to provide the needed services, healthcare, public awareness, education um, to, to all in our society. So then how many people here in Massachusetts or even just the greater Boston area right now are living with AIDS and HIV? In 2018, there were approximately 23,000 people living with HIV in the state of Massachusetts. In the city of Boston, over 5,000 living with HIV, uh, making up roughly a quarter of those who are HIV positive in Massachusetts. So we do see an increase in the numbers um, throughout Boston and throughout Massachusetts. Hmm. So what do you think are some of the factors that are contributing to that uptick in more cases of HIV and AIDS? Some of it has to do with the ongoing um, public health crisis that we're we're currently in. And that also includes the um, 
the opiate epidemic we're facing. Some of it is public awareness, education campaigns mm -hmm. that we need to make sure we stay on top of. And um, access, I think access to um, public, public health services um, is, is also a part of the problem, but it's really a part of the solution. We must provide people with um, safe, safe needle and clean needles. Uh, we also must provide residents with the public awareness and education campaigns and the services in public health to deal with this crisis we're facing. Well, is some of this happening right now, or are these programs that are still in the process of being put together? It, well, during these, um, the coronavirus, uh, during this pandemic, we have seen a lot of public health services not necessarily be cut, but for patients that have been difficult to access. Mm. So we want to work with our providers in, in the healthcare community to ensure that public health awareness and services for people living with HIV and AIDS in the, in the education campaign is a critical part as we go forward. And that's important. That's what we're going to look for in the city council hearing. Now, I remember, if I remember correctly, that's also part, uh, too, of the city's mass and cast program, right? Uh, the safe needle depositories and the safe needle stations. So in a way, you could almost tie those two together. And I'm sure the funding would also work together as well. Yes, they, they are connected. Um, we've seen a lot of increases of HIV, AIDS, um, due to the Mass Ave, um, Albany, Southampton uh, drug pandemic. Um, but what is also important is we we have seen healthcare workers providing so much critical services to those um, to those people. But we need to do more. We need to do more awareness. We need to do more public health services. This is a crisis, and we must work together to make sure that we provide the necessary public health services to all. Well, counselor, you know we talk about health disparities during the pandemic, but especially in communities of color. Those disparities have been around a long time, and um, they, they cross all segments of the healthcare spectrum. So talk to us, I guess, for a minute about how HIV and AIDS is specifically affecting black and brown communities in Boston. The number of um, African-American and Latinx uh, neighbors is much higher than that of our white neighbors in, in Boston. And part of that is access to uh, medical services. It's not having the, some of it is not having the right primary care. Some of it is um, not being able to access the healthcare system or have insurance, mm -hmm. but there's certainly a huge breakdown. And we have seen those numbers increase, especially in the communities of color on HIV and AIDS in the discrepancies in the, um, the difference between Latinx and African-Americans and others is staggering. So we must bridge that gap we see and make sure that communities of color have the same and equal access to health care and public health as, as does everybody else. Absolutely. And I'd be curious to know, obviously, you talk with your other city councilors all the time. Uh, what are their thoughts on this and your call for this hearing? They're they're happy and they're glad to be part of it. They also are working hard 
as is, as is the mayor and his team. Um, but we have seen, especially during this pandemic, kind of a breakdown throughout the country, really, um, of medical care for communities of color. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of work ahead of us to do. Um, and, and it begins with acknowledging that there's a huge problem, but also, also making sure that we provide the necessary resources and services and care to people in need. In this case, people living with HIV and AIDS, they are our, our brothers and sisters, and they deserve the same level of respect and dignity. Obviously, working with community organizations, we have a lot of them in Boston, all doing incredible work. On this front specifically, are you working with anybody to get this done? Yes, we're working with um, community health centers throughout the city. We're working with the City of Boston Public Health Commission, but East Boston uh, Community Health Center, along with Fenway Community Health Center, um, are doing terrific work on this, as is the South Boston Community Health Center. The Fenway Community Health Center is moving a satellite office into the Chinatown neighborhood. And that's one issue we're going to continue to work on is making sure residents um, have the same level of services, access to public health. Just as an example, the neighborhood of Chinatown has the largest uh, the highest asthma rate of any neighborhood in New England. Really? And m- some of that is because of their physical location almost uh, on the Mass Pike and on the highway system right. um, next to the South Station area trains and buses. But w- that's another issue we're focused on is, is, is addressing issues impacting communities of color on various public health issues we have a lot of work to do. What about on the state level here? What sort of resources can you get from Beacon Hill? Yeah, no, no, who I was impressed with is the state is doing excellent work in this regard. But uh, State Representative John Santiago, especially who is a medical doctor yeah. at the BU Medical Center, is doing terrific work on a lot of public health issues. But we're fortunate to have so many dedicated state legislators and Governor Baker as well that know that this is a crisis and are committed to working with us, continuing to work with us, um, making sure that we get the services needed for people living with HIV and AIDS. So if somebody is listening right now and uh, they need services, if they're living with HIV or AIDS, uh, maybe especially if they're in a community of color right now in the city, they're not really sure where to turn, what's in place right now for them to get some help? I think the first thing would be to identify a primary care doctor, and you can do that by registering. I'd encourage anyone that doesn't have health care to register at the, their nearest community um, health center, mm-hmm. whether it's East Boston. The South End is now part of East Boston. Uh, Fenway Community Health, the South Boston Community Health Center, they provide excellent medical care to so many people in our city. But having a primary care doctor, um, getting your first appointment as a, with the primary care doctor, and then letting the primary care doctor know that there's some services, services you, you specifically need. And that really begins the process, in my opinion, of, of um, addressing public health concerns. But, but, but getting started into the healthcare system is the first step.
Sure. And I think that a lot of us have been trying to maybe not necessarily go and get as many health screenings or, you know, we might not go to the doctor as much as we did before because of the pandemic, a little scared about that. It's so important for people to go and get seen because these health clinics, these facilities, they're doing everything they can to keep you safe from COVID. So we shouldn't let that keep us from getting checked out and getting those primary care doctors and getting that help in place. That's right, Nicole. And Nicole, just as an example, I I served 24 years in the U.S. Navy, mostly in the reserves, but served on active duty. I get all of my health care at the VA Medical, mm-hmm. and the care I receive there is excellent. Um, but I, I, I don't think I'd be here today if it wasn't for the dedicated nurses and doctors and, and counselors at the VA. They provide exceptional services to our returning veterans. But I'm just using that as an example that the medical community can have a a huge impact on your life and and can make your life um, such a positive thing, even during these difficult and trying times. Sure, because if you're healthy physically, then, then you can work on being healthy mentally and emotionally. It all works together, right? That's exactly right, Nicole. All right. Well, counselor, if somebody has a question for you or your office, how can they get a hold of you? Yes, Nicole. If anyone wants to reach me, they can reach me directly at ed.flynn at boston.gov, ed.flynn at boston.gov. I check my emails um, all day and night, seven days a week. Please reach out to me in my office if there's any issues. I also have um, staff that speak both Cantonese in Mandarin and Spanish fluently. Um, so anyone that speaks those languages and needs needs assistance, please let us know as well. Well, Counselor Ed Flynn, it's always good to have you on the show. Thanks for coming back to talk with us. Nicole, thank you for having me on. Well, that's our show this week. Please stay safe and healthy and join me next time around for another edition of New England Weekend. I'm Nicole Davis from WBZ News Radio on iHeartRadio. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.